Good morning, everyone. A reading from the first book of Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for their salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Good morning, everybody. So that's the last time we're going to have Ebony read that whole section because we're going to finish that portion. So um, I, I kind of almost want to start over again. <laughs> Such a great section of scripture. Um, we'd like to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, if you want to meet Kathy at the back there. And um, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, your name is indeed wonderful. And uh, we dare not trust in the sweetest frame of mind, the sweetest feeling, the hope that we have that we be behaved well this week. Lord, that's not where our trust lies. It, it lies exclusively in you. And we thank you for those good feelings, for those moments of hope, those glimmers of of obedience to you, and we pray that you would increase them, but don't let our hope rest there. Uh, Father, we want to pray again for our brothers and sisters in the island nation of Tonga as the earthquakes continue. Um, the, uh, the island, Lord, for some reason you have decided to put those people square in the focus of the attention of the world, and Lord, we ask that your church around the world would be praying for them. Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose in that nation, whatever it is that you're doing there. Why, why you decided that that would be the volcano that would go off, why that nation would suffer. And so, Lord, as they continue to get rattled by the um, volcanic activity, Lord, we pray that um, as, a, as a people, as a group of people, your church in Tonga would um, just show the glory of Jesus Christ, that you are worthy of being trusted even when uh, tsunami, earthquake, and volcanic ash cover the land. Lord, you're worth more than all of that. 
And Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for Melissa's return. Uh, thank you that she is upright and moving. Lord, thank you that the doctors were able to find and diagnose and correct the problem she was having with her heart. And we pray for her continued growth and strength and, and return uh, to full health. And Lord, we pray that she would be better after the surgery than she was before because you corrected um, problems that, that she wasn't even aware she had. So we thank you that our sister is with us again. And uh, we pray that you would continue to bless her with uh, strength and, and, um, and improvement on a regular basis. Thank you for her willingness to, to come out and be with us today. And Lord, now as we turn to this last portion of uh, this part of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand, to believe and to trust in the word of God, because that's what we're looking at. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in, um, in 1946, in the UK, a couple named Mr. and Mrs. Nourish spent about 100 pounds on some t antiques at what we would call an estate sale. It was uh, clearing out a house. They just got this lot of antiques for about 100 pounds. And uh, their son, uh, Terry, was born that same year. Well, when he married, however many years later that was, um, as a wedding gift, his parents gave him one of the antiques that they had picked up for in that lot for 100 pounds. It was a, a flower pot that was built on this tall stand. So the, the thing was about five foot tall altogether. And uh, Terry and his wife, uh, they became farmers. They kept it in a rather large dining room in their farmhouse. Well, eventually they had children. And children are children. So they would practice soccer in this living room. It was big enough that they could kick a, a soccer ball around. And so they used this flower pot as a goalpost because it was just the right height. And, and so that's what they would aim at. They would kick the, the ball at the flower pot. Well, out of curiosity, in 1991, uh, Terry, from the little town of Fullstow, took the pot to a local filming of the episode of the Antiques Roadshow. Um, if you've ever seen the Antiques Roadshow, it started in England. Lisa and I used to watch it when we lived there. Um, of course, their antiques are a lot older than this nation, too. But <laughs> So he took it in just out of curiosity, not expecting it to be worth anything. Just, you know, it was pretty, and so he, they took it in. Um, Eric Knowles was the man who assessed it. He's a, an antiques expert. He spe specializes in ceramics and glass. And he explained that the pot was actually an important French Japanese piece. That means it was in French artwork, but it was influenced by Japan. And it was this important piece made of enamel and gilt and bronze. And it was made by this renowned um, uh, jeweler named Chris, uh, Charles Christophile. And it was made for the Paris Exposition in 1874. So he valued the pot at 10,000 pounds in 1991. Um, Mr. Nourish decided to hang on to the pot. He took it home and decided also that the children would no longer kick soccer balls at it. <laughs> but he just kind of took it home. It was a pretty thing. It reminded him of his parents. And so he, he kind of sat on it. Well, about 20 years later, when he was getting ready to retire, he thought, you know, I'm, I'm assuming he thought, well, I could use some cash. So, why don't I get rid of this pot and, you know, I, I'll have some money. In 1991, he took it to Christie's. Um, oh, I mean, I'm sorry, 20 years later, so it would have been about 2011, he took it to Christie's of London for an auction where it sold for 668,000 pounds. So um, Mr. Nourish then spent money on travel 
and he gave some money to his family, and he bought a new BMW. And then when he returned, the suntanned Mr. Nourish went to an Antiques Roadshow again to explain the story and, and tell what had happened. And so it was interesting that he had this thing that he had no, no idea the value of that his children are kicking soccer balls at. Um, just amazing that he would get so much money for it. Well, what Peter is going to do for us today is he's, we're going to kind of go to the Antiques Roadshow for our faith. We're going to have an expert assess the value of our faith. We're going we're to take it before people, and then at the end, we're going to set it up for auction and, and let people see what this looks like and, and get even more expert opinion of the value of it. Um, what we're doing in this section, 3 through 12, like, um, like Ebony read for us this morning, it's about our living faith, this hope that we have, this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that first section we heard about, this inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us, it's, it's reserved for us. And then last week we heard how even in the face of persecution, our faith is worth hanging on to. It, it is that important. It, it, because what God's doing is he's refining our faith. He's testing it, not as in are you legit or not, but testing it as in proving it to be worthy. And so we hang on to it. So in this last portion, he wants to tell us the provenance of our faith. Where has it come from? Where has it been? What's been happening to it? And so he begins with uh, verse 10, concerning this salvation. So remember what this salvation is. He's been teaching about this salvation. This is the salvation of your souls. And what we said was soul was not just the immaterial portion of you, but body and spirit together is your soul. That's all of who you are. It is the outcome of your precious faith. That's what your salvation is. It's the outcome of your precious faith. It's why you have faith is for the salvation of your soul. It's being guarded through faith by God. So this salvation that you have, God himself is preserving your faith and guarding that salvation that you've been given. And it, it is going to lead us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. So this is the picture, the, the salvation that he's reminding us of. So this is what he's talking about concerning that salvation. What happened? Well, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. There were prophets who prophesied about this very thing. Our salvation is not some new invention. It wasn't God's plan B where he came up and said, oh, let's try this. It was something that he had promised all along. Prophets of old would tell about these things. They would preach about these things. So this is why Peter calls us elect exiles who are foreknown by the Father. This is an old promise. This this faith that we had, the salvation that's, that's given to us is ancient. As a matter of fact, since it is God's foreknowledge, it means it was God's idea before time existed. So now things get a little weird here because we're going to talk about what God did before time existed. God is not bound in time. He's not part of time. He created time. There was a time when time wasn't. See, we can only speak in chronological terms. I, I can't talk about things happening outside of time. But it wasn't like God in his foreknowledge went, oh, I see what's going to happen. Now I, it's become revealed to me. I didn't know it before, but now I know. God's foreknowledge is something that he must always have. Why is that? Because if there's something that God doesn't know that he learns, then there's something that he's not aware of, and his sovereignty is threatened. And if there's something that he's not aware of, it could be something else that he might not be aware of. And so 
what about his omnipresence, his, his presence throughout all of creation? There might be a corner of the universe that God is not present in, unaware of what's happening, and it could screw up everything in his plans. So if we take his foreknowledge and we don't acknowledge God has always known, he didn't learn anything, he's always known this, he's known who would be saved because we are elect according to his foreknowledge. And his foreknowledge, he always knew it. So before time even began, the salvation that we have was known to God. It's that old. How's that for an ancient providence? Makes 1847 seem pretty lame, doesn't it? So God has always known this, but he reveals it in time. He created time, he created a universe, and he created people in it. And so in that time, he spoke through prophets. And so prophets would tell stories. They would talk about these things. Now, when the, when the prophets spoke, they were speaking about our salvation. So it's ancient, as in before time. It's ancient, as in this was, we're talking about the time of the exile when most of the prophets wrote. And it's that grace that he's given to us, that salvation that he's given to us, that, that promise of this grace, which is, I would define as God's unearned love for us. We don't deserve it, but he loves us anyway. That is what they spoke of, and it is ours. He's talking about your personal faith, the grace that you have, the salvation that has been promised to you, and the faith that God is using to guard that promise. That's what he says the prophets were talking about. You're in the Bible. How about that? So these prophets who prophesied about that, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They searched and inquired carefully. So those words behind that are not passive like they looked it up in a book. It is diligent, digging in, trying to understand, wrestling with these things. So here's what would happen is sometimes the prophets would speak because the spirit came upon them and they would just say something. Sometimes God would come to a prophet and say, here's what I want you to say. Thus says the Lord. And they would go out and they would pronounce it. And sometimes the prophets would be inspired to write and they would be writing down exactly as God carried them along. As the spirit carried them along, they would write his words. And then what Peter is telling us is after they finished that, they would go, wow, what does that mean? <laughs> Can you imagine the spirit coming upon you and you making this grand pronouncement and then going, what just came out of my mouth? Lord, that was incredible. I'm searching and inquiring diligently as to what this means. This is what they're talking about. They're looking for an answer to what just happened. And it says that they searched and inquired, inquiring what person or time. Now, time you can understand. They, they would announce that this was going to happen and they could be curious about what time, but it, it's tied to a person. They inquired about what person they were speaking of. So why is it a person in this prophecy? Well, if you look at God's promises, let's go all the way back to the garden. The fall happens. God comes in and he curses the serpent. And part of the curse in the serpent is your seed and the seed of the woman will be at war. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. There's a person. God immediately starts speaking about a person who's going to deal with this sin issue. And you can kind of tell that Adam and Eve got that because they named their first son Cain, which is got him. God gave us the man. And then when they have another son, what do they name him? Aval, Abel. You know what that means? It's used in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, Aval of Aval. So they go, we got him, and then we got him. <laughs> we got an extra one. 
So they were looking for this person. And you can just follow that, that line right through the scriptures. Noah, when Noah is born, they say, ah, Noah is going to give us rest. And they're probably talking about rest from the laboring and the toil of the soil because that was the curse that was announced to Adam is the ground is cursed because of you. So they looked to Noah and they said, Noah's born here. He's going to be the one. They're looking for a person to deliver them. And the story continues on and on. Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In your seed. And then Paul tells us in Galatians, it's seed, singular. One person, Jesus Christ. Then Moses comes along and he's given this big, huge covenant with all of these sacrifices and laws about what's clean and unclean and priests and temples and all of these things. And what Moses is picturing is, you are really that bad. You really do need a savior. This is how sin looks. That's what Paul tells us is the law came along to make sin sinful. So you could see how sinful it was. And that's Moses' role. But in the middle of that, Moses says, a prophet is going to rise from among you, like me, and you'll listen to him. And that, that's pointing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's another incident where the people begin to grumble in the desert. And so Moses is told, make a serpent, put it up on a pole, and hold it above them. And the promise is anybody who looks on this will be healed because they were being bitten by fiery serpents. And Jesus himself says, just as Moses did that, I will be lifted up. So there's all these little hints, these little promises of a person coming along. David, David secures the nation. He reunites the tribes. He draws them together. He moves the capital to Jerusalem, which they took over from the Jebusites. And he settles. He builds a, a, a palace for himself. And he looks out one day and he sees the tabernacle set up and he goes, man, I, I'm going to build a, a house for God. I've got my house. I'm going to build one for him. And Nathan the prophet says, go for it. God's blessed everything you've done. But God came to Nathan and said, hang on. David is a man of blood. He's not going to build my house. I'll build a house for him as in a dynasty. His son will build my house. And when his son builds my house, I will be a father to him and, and, and I will seat him on a throne forever. And so he's looking for the son. Well, Solomon immediately fulfilled it, but it wasn't the full fulfillment of it because Solomon died. He's not currently sitting on the throne. But Jesus is the son of David, and he sits on the throne. So they're looking for the time. When will this person show up, and who is this person? Who is this person going to be? That's the promise that's been echoing through time. Now, when we get to Jesus, when we get to the New Testament, the Jews had an idea that this promised person was coming, but it was a little confused. It was hard to understand. Just like the prophets had diligently searched and tried to understand, it was confusing because they thought it might be three different people. So, for example, the, the Jewish term Messiah is talking about David's son because Messiah is, it means anointed, and that's where we get Christ, is Christ means anointed. But Messiah is literally a king. And so in uh, Luke 23, when they're accusing Jesus, they say that he's saying himself, he called himself the Christ, which is a king. So they're expecting a king, David's son, to come sit on the throne. But there's another person that's kind of tied to these, these apocalyptic end time things. And, and that's from Daniel chapter 7, a man, one like the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. 
So there's this earthly king who's going to come and reestablish the kingdom. He's going to do what David did, reunite the nation. He's going to secure the borders. He's going to give us peace and prosperity. He's going to do what Solomon did and make us rich and prosperous and, and beautiful again. But then there's this son of man, one like a son of man coming on clouds in glory. And he's going to come and he's going to judge. And so the thought was he's probably some sort of heavenly being who's going to come. Maybe an angel, maybe, maybe a resurrected prophet or something. We don't know who he is, but he's going to come and bring judgment. And they thought of these as two different people. And then the other person that they had to kind of reckon with was Isaiah's suffering servant. Who was this? That didn't fit the, the triumphant King David, and it didn't fit the man, uh, one like a son of man from heaven, because they're victorious. They're not suffering. So who is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53? And you can tell that they're wrestling with this because in Acts chapter 8, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading... Isaiah 53, and he says, and the eunuch said to, to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Now, the, the eunuch had just come from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. He had probably heard a lot of teachers, and this was probably in his hands because maybe that was discussed before he left. And he's confused because they didn't know. So they had a fuzzy picture. They didn't know exactly how all these things fit together, but we do because we're looking back at it. Jesus called himself repeatedly the Son of Man while he walked in the role of the suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, he knew these things, and yet he referred to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Because he was both human and divine, that divine creature. There's only one person that could fit those two things together. And yet, we're also looking for him to come in the role of the Son of David, to come, and he, he's a king. He's gone off to receive his kingdom, He's sitting at the right hand of God right now, ruling the nations, and there's a day he's coming back to physically be the son of David and sit on that throne forever. So it's, this is the picture of what the prophets are trying to do. They're trying to put all of these pieces together. And by the way, that's not the exclusive, full definition of what everybody thought the Messiah was. The people who wrote the Dead Sea Scroll, the Essenes, they thought that there would be another Messiah-ish person who would come and cleanse the temple, who would purify the worship. They would, he would be a priestly kind of Messiah. But it's a general picture of how they understood these prophecies. They couldn't quite put them together. They were inquiring what time and person the Spirit of Christ was indicating in, to them. Now, why is he the Spirit of Christ? Was it Jesus himself who went and talked to them? I don't think so, because we know from other scriptures that it was the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. So when it says the Spirit of Christ, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So why is he the Spirit of Christ? Well, he's the Spirit of Christ because he's the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets about Jesus Christ. He's the Spirit of Christ. That's how he's, he's speaking through them. That's what he's telling them. They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them when he was predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. Now, the sufferings of Christ... Of course, you can immediately go to uh, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And that makes sense. And, and we should. We should see Jesus there. That, that's clearly a picture of him. But there's other places where he's talked of as suffering as well. So, for example, Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves and cast, uh, for my clothing cast lots. So at this year, as you're reading through the Bible, as you're going through your reading plan, 
pay attention to these things. Look for the prophecies about Jesus' suffering and subsequent glories. They're all over the place. There's too many for me to list. Um, in one of the commentaries, they had a quote with, here's some of the better ones, and it was like two lines worth of Bible verses. There's just all over the place. And if you're doing the chronological Bible study where you're reading um, the story in order, the prophets will be linked up where they happen in the story. Pay attention to that because what you'll see is most of the written prophecies are clumped around the exile. And so what you see in, the, in those written prophecies clumped around the exile is doom and gloom. Judgment is coming. You are going to be carried away. Just lay down your arms, walk out to Nebuchadnezzar, and go into exile because it's happening. And so it's, it's this horrible picture that they, they're given. They're going to go into exile. And then suddenly in the middle of that, you hear, but Assyria and Egypt will be my people. They will form a highway, and they'll grab hands with the Jews, and they'll all come together in their worship. And you go, where does that come from? We're, we're going into exile, and you're saying that, that you're going to save the nations? It's hard to understand, but when you begin to put those pieces together and look for Jesus in those prophecies, you're seeing what, what Peter's talking about. The prophets were looking through this themselves. They were pouring through this diligently, saying, when is this going to happen? Who is this person who's coming? What will he be like? So join them in that trek this year as you go through the Bible, reading through uh, chronologically. So verse 12, here's what happens. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. The Bible was written for you. It was written for us who in these last days get to see what's going on. This, this is given to us. And there's a couple other places in the New Testament that talks about it that way. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is going through the exile. They were baptized into Moses. They ate the bread. They had this rock that followed them. That was all about Jesus Christ. But they weren't faithful. And so this has been written for you. The things that happened to them have been written for you. We have the full, complete scripture. We got the Old and the New Testament together. And so they're written to us so that we can hear them. But it was revealed that they were not serving themselves. Those prophecies that were coming about exile and, and judgment and, and yet deliverance, they weren't exactly for that time, but they were. Does that make sense? That's really clear. I'll just press on. Prophecy, the way prophecy looks, when you look back through the scriptures, it has the prophet will speak and it will have an immediate, I don't mean like, you know, right after he says it, but an immediate fulfillment. It has time, the, what the prophet's talking about is fulfilled in what he's saying. And yet that's not the fullness of it. So I think the best example of that is from Isaiah chapter seven. Ahaz is the king of Judah and he's being attacked by um, King Rezin, the king of Syria, and Remaliah, the king of, uh, of Israel. They're attacking Judah. And so God tells Ahaz, I'm going to deliver you from them. Ask me for a test. Ask me for a sign that this will happen. And Ahaz wisely says, I'm not testing the Lord. And so here's what God says. This is Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 13. Hear me then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the prophecy immediately applied to Ahaz being attacked by these two kings. Now, 
I'm sorry to tell you, the story doesn't go terribly well for Ahaz. Um, in 2 Kings 16, we find out that he winds up going to the king of Assyria and offers her money and says, please come and help me. Even though God said, I'm going to do this, he, he kind of chickens out. But he did have a son, and his son's name was Hezekiah. So this had an immediate fulfillment. Is that the end of that prophecy? We know it's not. It, there, there's so much more to that. That prophecy is actually fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. So that term, um, the virgin will conceive, there's a lot of debate about that because it could be virgin as in not knowing a man, but it could also mean just a young woman. And so that's probably what it meant in Isaiah's time was the young woman that you're married to, she will eventually have a child. And by the time that child gets to age to understand, those two other nations are going to be gone. But we know that the fuller picture of that is the virgin will conceive. Mary will not know a man, and yet the Holy Spirit will come upon her. So that's how you look at these, these prophecies. They were not for them. They were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. So there's an immediate fulfillment for them, but that's not the ultimate thing. And they knew it. That's why they were searching diligently and looking through that. That's what they were hoping to find. So this salvation that was conceived of before time in the mind of God, it was announced and it was pictured in the prophets. And it's alive today. It's something that's happening today. So what Peter tells us next, in these things, that is those, those promises that God has made, in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So it, it happened then, and it's happening today, as the Holy Spirit speaks through people to tell these, good news, these stories of good news. So my theology of preaching is, preaching is, the Holy Spirit speaking to his people through a man. And my job is to not mess it up, to not get in the way. So if we're doing this faithfully, we're going to the scriptures, we're looking at the scriptures, we're holding up what the Holy Spirit has been saying all along, and we're finding Jesus in the Bible and saying, here he is. Here's the promise of salvation. This is what God's been doing since he began. This is the, the, the whole story of the Bible is the salvation that you now enjoy. That's how you faithfully and truthfully preach the word. And we have to be careful here. Don't assume that labels equal solid preaching. There are churches in the evangelical free church that faithfully and honestly and truthfully preach the word of God just like this. And I am sure that some that just tell goofy stories and, and do weird things that don't do it. There are churches within the Southern Baptist Convention that are rock solid preaching the word of God every day and there are some that are just loopy. There are Presbyterian churches in the PCA that will preach the word of God faithfully, honestly, diligently, and there are some that are just a circus. So don't assume that a label is, is the answer. One of the best preachers I had in one of my preaching labs, we would, we would study preaching and then we had to go to a lab and preach a message. One of the best preachers I heard in those preaching labs, probably the best, was a Methodist minister. So don't think that Methodism is just a, a whole train wreck either. There are faithful people in there preaching the word of God. It can happen anywhere. So what we're looking for is people who will hold up the scriptures and preach them to us. And, and I hope I do that. That's what I'm trying to do is just stick to what the word says and bring that to you on a regular basis. I don't often listen to Christian radio. It's not good for my soul. I get very frustrated. So one time I, I was driving around and I turned on Christian radio and a, a ministry started, and so I looked at my watch. It's a half an hour program, and they have their introduction and who we are and what's going on in the groovy music that's playing. And then the man started preaching, and he preaches, and halfway through they take a break and say a few 
send us money, we'll, we'll send you a book because you're supporting the ministry. And then there's a couple of minutes at the end where they're kind of wrapping it up and, and drawing it all together. The about 20 minutes or so this man preached, I timed it. He told story after story, wonderful stories, good fun stories. This is really interesting. Isn't that clever? He didn't get to the scripture until about three minutes before he was done. And I just was like, I don't need stories. I mean, I'm sure that these are good biblical ideas that you're talking about, but I need the word of God. I'm not sending you a dime. I don't want your book. (laughs) I want this book. I want the Bible. So be careful, my friends, and pay attention to this because this is happening now. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you now through the scriptures? Is a a, a person standing before you and preaching the word of God as it stands? Now, we're going to have differences of opinion and we're going to wrestle with it because it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Dan was talking about in Sunday school this morning about a guy just would print out and read sermons from somebody else. If I was to print out... a a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers ever, and stand here and read it to you, that would not be doing what this says. Not because Spurgeon is not faithful, but because Charles Spurgeon is not your pastor. He is not your preacher. If I was to print out a sermon by John Calvin and stand here and read it to you verbatim, that would not be doing this. Chrysostom, that means golden throat. He was a wonderful preacher in the third century. Wouldn't do it. Because I need to do this here with you. Just like at Faith Community, Pastor Caleb needs to do that with that congregation. And over at Central, that pastor needs to do it. And at Grace, that pastor needs to do it. And Lancaster Baptist, that pastor needs to do it. Because it's a living thing that God's doing. He is speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking through this person in this context to these people. So that's how we can have different approaches to the scripture. I listened to John Piper on this, and I went, I'm not going to preach it that way. He took a different, he, did, I, he wasn't wrong, but what was happening in his congregation in 1991 when he preached that was different than what's happening in my congregation in 2022. 2000, 2000? Yeah, 2022. That doesn't sound right. That sounds weird. So this is, this is what's happening. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And, and one of the most encouraging things that happens is, a pastor, and it's not just me, I, I hear a lot of pastors say this, I, I worked on this sermon and I got this thing honed and I was like, man, this, is just, this part is going to land, it's going to stick. And they preach the sermon and people come up and go, oh, that was an excellent sermon. Why, thank you. And they point out something that he had no idea was in there. <laughs> it's like they heard something he wasn't preaching. Why? Because it's not me preaching. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. I just have to not mess it up. So I can get excited about one part of it, but you may connect with something completely different. And that's okay. That's what's happening. So this is the salvation that God is bringing to us. He hasn't stopped doing it with the prophets. He's doing it actively today. By the way, when you share the gospel with somebody else, when you talk with somebody, a a friend or family about who Jesus is, the same thing can be happening. If you're sticking true to the word, if you're not making it up as you go, but you're saying, let me tell you what the Bible says about this. That can be the Holy Spirit speaking through you to this person to bring this great salvation to them. Because that's how God has ordained this great salvation will be spread, is through people who are, care- who are speaking the good news to you sent from the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. So know that this is not me. I am not so special and wonderful and just, you know, God has anointed me and I can just stand up here. You all have this ability because the Holy Spirit has come on all of us. That's the promise of the New, Te- New Covenant. 
So when you speak the gospel to somebody else, that can happen. Why is this so wonderful? Well, consider this. It's happened before time. It happened in time. It's happening now. And so the prophets were fascinated by it. I, I admit, I'm fascinated by it. I love studying the scriptures. But there's another audience that's even greater that is totally fascinated by this salvation. Things into which angels long to look. That does not mean there is somebody in heaven holding their hand over angels' eyes going, you can't look at that. You can't see that. Don't, don't you look there. It is, if the angels have 500 channels on their television, they're hitting one button, the button of salvation. And so what they're doing is they're in heaven and they're looking down on earth and they go, watch this. God did it again. He saved another one. Isn't that amazing? That's why Jesus says, so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They don't look and go, oh, high five, dude, you got it. They turn around and look at God and go, you did it again and again. This great mercy which you preach, which you proclaim, you have, you have conceived of it before time began. You have spoken of it all the way through the scriptures. You have people on earth speaking that truth now. And look, Lord, you saved another one. And they rejoice in heaven. This is the hope that we have. This is what Paul, or the, this is what Peter wants to draw our attention to. This hope, this, this blessing, this salvation is priceless. It is worth more than gold. So don't kick soccer balls at it. it it's really easy in these days to become apathetic about our faith, to just kind of take it for granted. Well, yeah, I guess I'm saved. Okay. And, and the problem is, there's probably multiple problems. One I'm going to pick on is largely social media. We have shining little glass boxes in our hand that have constant information flowing over it. And you can get into a death scroll where you just keep scrolling through TikTok and watching another video or Instagram, isn't that a pretty picture? Or Facebook, I can't believe he said that. And scroll and scroll and scroll and never get to the end because there is no end. But you know what it's doing is it's distracting. It's, it's keeping your mind off of something important. I, I caught myself, I had a game installed on my iPad, and I found that whenever I would go and just play one round on it, it was like somebody hit a reset button on my brain. I had no idea what I had just done. What was I thinking of before? I don't remember what I was doing. I had to take it off. I had to delete it because I was too addicted. We live in these distracted times, so resist the death scroll. It's hard. It's, it's built to, it, they, have, they actually hired uh, psychologists to come in and say, how do we get people addicted to this? The same people who design slot machines in Las Vegas design Facebook. It's designed to make you addicted to it. That's what it's there for. So resist. Now, I, I, I read an article in, oh, I don't even remember what magazine it was. It was a guy, I think it was The Atlantic. And this guy had just written a book and it had just sold, so he had a lot of money. And so he said, I'm going to go away. And so he went to some place in Connecticut, and before he got there, he put his laptop and his phone and his tablet in a locker and locked it. And he went to this little tiny beach town in Connecticut and just read a newspaper. He said the first couple of days he was twitchy. He was like, what's, what's going on? But he would just read a newspaper and go for a walk and go to a coffee shop and meet somebody. And he loved it. Eventually, after I think he said it was there about a month or so, He's like, man, I'm never going back to social media. I, I'm never doing that. So he gets home and he takes the computer and stuff out and it sits for a couple of days. Within a month, he's back to exactly the same pattern he was before. So he talked to somebody and they said, it's kind of like saying, 
I'm going to wear a gas mask because the pollution in this city is so bad, but I'm only going to wear it for two hours a day. Well, it helps, but the pollution is still bad. The environment we're in is horrible. So this is going to be a fight to make sure that you treasure your faith, you, you ironclad sink into your, the hope that we have. It's going to take some work. So here's some recommendations. By the way, this is totally worth fighting for. Read long reads on paper in a book. They have done studies and they found that retention on an electronic device, the exact same text, an electronic device or on paper, people retain more if they hold a book in their hand and read it than they do if they look at it on a screen. Even a Kindle, which is not a glowing screen. Get a book and read it. And by the way, if you want some help, there's a book table right out the door. And I, I hand-selected some what I consider very good books. Hold a paper book in your hand and read it. And don't have your phone or your tablet sitting next to you. It will distract you. Even though you're not touching it, you know it's there. You're kind of quivering. Put it in another room and read a book. Force yourself to do this. Set a time and say, I'm going to read for an hour right now, and I'm not going to check my phone. Make something physical. Build something. Build a bookshelf, because you're going to read all these books. Build a bookshelf. Get into pottery. Jen Carlson, does, she has a pottery wheel and a, a pottery barn, but not a store, in her backyard. She makes pottery. She gets away from the world and just goes in there and makes pottery. Paint something. Lisa does watercolors every once in a while, and she's getting pretty good at it. She's actually got some beautiful work. You don't have to make it wonderful. It can, it can start out looking like a four-year-old's. That's fine. You're making something physical. Draw. Remodel the room. Don't do your whole house like we are. <laughs> do something physical. Not something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a program. It, that's great. Do something physical in the real world, three-dimensional. Practice fasting from your devices. I'm going to put these away on Tuesday. I'm not even turning them on. And that's what I'm going to do. Engage with flesh and blood people, not online personas. Go visit somebody. I think Joanne Sadler would love it if you came over and just sat with her for half an hour. She's very easy to talk to, very pleasant person. Invite somebody in the congregation to, to lunch. Spend time with flesh and blood people, not online personas. Stick to that reading plan. Read through the Bible in a year. Stick to it. Enjoy checking off those days as you go through it. Find joy in that. And don't do it on an electronic device. Pull a paper Bible out. If you need one, we'll get you one. You've got to form these solid habits to get off of those screens, get eyes off of screens. And I need somebody to do something very important. I'd like to ask somebody to write these things down and then hand them to me and remember me, remind me that I said to do this because I need to hear it. <laughs> I, I have gotten into death scrolls and I'm going, I really should get off this device. Oh, that's interesting. So I need to listen to my own advice on this. Here's the problem. Your faith, if you neglect it, will not flourish. God is guarding you through faith. He is, he is the one who's holding you fast. But if you, if you neglect it, it will fade. It will weaken. You don't want to do that. You want, you want to have strong faith. And so Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You're sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, and yet you can grieve him. 
You can make it difficult for him to seal you. You can, you can struggle against him. Don't do that. This faith that, that Peter has pronounced to us is precious. It is more precious than gold. When gold has dissolved in a million billion years, your faith will still be equally as precious as it ever was. Tend to that. You've, got, you've gone on to the Antiques Roadshow, and the prophets have come in and said 10,000 pounds. That, that's worth 10,000 pounds. But the angels come back 20 years later, look over and go, 668,000 pounds. How much is your faith worth? The experts are, are praising it higher and higher. Fight for that. That's what we have been given, this treasure of God. We have to fight for it. And it, this world is not going to make it easy. The distractions will come calling. The doubters will come barking. The, the struggles, struggles are going to be, that's what Peter right in the middle of this said, by the way, you're going to get tested. You're going to go through persecution and, and you're going to struggle for a little while. But God is refining your faith. So look at this device as persecution and struggle and a challenge to your faith and go, I'm going to war against it. I'm going to fight for this. This is worth fighting for. So that's Peter's promise to us. That's the faith that he has. Now, this is important that he says this because what starts next is he's going to say, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober. He's going to start talking about what we have to do. But what Peter wants us to make sure we don't miss is this thing starts with the salvation that God has planned, that God is executing, that he is guarding you through faith. He is executing these things. You are not saved by being a good person. But since you're saved, go be a good person. That's what he's going to do for us next week. But we have to get the salvation straight first. And so he has really drilled it into our heads. That's why we took so long to get through that section. So with that... Let's close in prayer and put our devices away. Lord, thank you so much that you purchased something so valuable, and as a wedding gift, you gave it to us. We are the bride of Christ, and we have received this wonderful gift, this priceless heirloom from you, this thing that has been conceived in your mind before time it was, Lord, something that you have brought to us through the prophets, writing and speaking and, and proclaiming your word. And Lord, through faithful people today, standing in pulpits, standing on street corners, talking at the water cooler, and sharing this wonderful message of this salvation. And Lord, it is such a glorious thing. It is so huge, so valuable, so beautiful. Angels are peering over the rail of heaven and cheering as it happens. Lord, help us to root our hearts in that truth. And hold our faith as precious. And as persecution comes, cause us to war against that, we pray. Through your power, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's praise God for that great salvation we've received now. Come stand with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy
praise you, God, we praise you. Praise God for all that he has done. Praise him for he has overcome. The grave is beaten, love has won. Praise God, our Savior, Christ, our Son. connected to something huge, something timeless. This is a song the church has been singing for a very long time, and we are united with them. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. So uh, some announcements. I ask you to take out your communication card and um, let us know any prayer requests, and then we've got some questions that you might need to put on there too. So tomorrow night in this very venue, Sam Rotman is going to be performing for us. So I ask you to please come out. Um, Sam tells interesting stories. He explains some of what's going on in the music. Sometimes classical music can, can be kind of confusing. What am I hearing here? What's happening? And so Sam talks through that, and then he shares also his, his testimony. So um, please join us. It's, it's really worth the evening. Uh, we're still looking for volunteers for the nursery. So if you'd like to help out, please talk to uh, Kathy and she'll get that coordinated. Um, the more volunteers we have, the less often you have to do it. So that's, that's a plus. Um, we just gotta tip that scale, get the tide turning in that direction. Um, media team, we talked about doing um, uh, training on February, I think it was the second. We're gonna reschedule it because we had some scheduling problems with folks. So we're looking further down the road, February 23rd, we wanna do media training. So PowerPoint, uh, the streaming, the sound, everything, we're gonna get together in here. I'm gonna buy you dinner. How's that? I will feed you. Food is, is the thing that draws us more often than not. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny little story real quick. It has nothing to do with this. <laughs> I, was, I was taking a um, church planting class, and uh, the professor said, well, who's going to plant a church? And I was like, well, I, I hope to, you know, when I'm done. And he said, okay, you're in charge. 
So we were going to plan my church that we were going to plant. And so we had this big timeline laid out, and, and we had to put things in places and discuss stuff. Well, the problem is when you get a church planting class together, you get a bunch of church planters together. And they're a different breed of people. They all had big ideas, and they all had their plans, and they're all talking, and they're, nobody's paying attention, and everybody's, and we couldn't move on this thing. And so the next week, um, I, was, I was working in the morning. I, before I left the store, I worked at Whole Foods. I picked up some food, some guacamole and chips and stuff. And so I brought it in, and we set the food down, and everybody started eating. And I went, okay, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> and we're going to do this and this and this. And, here's, and everyone's like, oh, that sounds good, because they had their face full of food. And uh, so the professor said, you brought that food on purpose, didn't you? I was like, well, it didn't fall into my hands. Yeah. He goes, well, you should be taking charge and getting this. Like, thank you. <laughs> so food is magic for me. I mean, it, it, can, it can make wonderful things happen. That had nothing to do with the announcements. It just popped into my head. So there you go. Aren't you blessed? Um, so again, February 23rd for media the, the media team training. So please, it's far enough out. Put it on your calendar, and, and please try to be here. Um, it's not going to take forever. We're not going to be here all night. Uh, we'll try to make it pretty quick, but we want to cover all the bases and, and get it all together. So uh, please mark that out. Also on the 23rd at 5.30 here. Oh, no, that's the same thing. I've, I put the same announcement in there twice. It's doubly important. It is that important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me go through it one more time. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the newlywed game, that's also been postponed. We tried to get it around th uh, Thanksgiving, <laughs> around Valentine's Day. It's some, some holiday around Valentine's Day, but it just wasn't working out. So we're, we're looking probably more like the 26th uh, toward the end of the month, the last Saturday of the month. 5.30, again, food will be provided. Um, so 5.30 is when the dinner will start. The game will start around 6. So please consider uh, joining us then. Again, free food. Um, and then also, I'm still looking for a volunteer who would like to uh, host a CareNet baby shower. And if uh, nobody steps forward, I'm going to start making some phone calls. But I wanted to give you a, sh I wanted to give you a chance first, you know, let, let, uh, let you have your first shot. But after that, I'm going to start maybe tapping some people. What we're going to do is just get some, some um, baby necessities together for CareNet, and they'll give us a list of what we need and that kind of stuff. So I just, I'm not a good planner of baby shower things, so I need somebody to help me out, please. Um, okay, with that, can I ask you to rise for our benediction? I love this benediction, by the way. I came across this, and I was going to put it in the sermon. I went, nope, this is the benediction. This is Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is that salvation that has been proclaimed to you. In Christ's name, amen.